coordinated our, our handoff there a little bit better. That was good. Well done. Well done, us. Uh, well, hey, one other thing I want you to uh, get to note on your calendars. On uh, March 5th, we have the pleasure of uh, bringing Jeremy Casella, who is a recording artist, um, here. He's going to do a concert on the, that evening, and then he's going to stay and lead worship uh, the next day on March 6th uh, with us. He's a friend of, of Casey uh, Johnson's, uh, went to college together. Casey was listening to a podcast. Uh, Jeremy had a song at the end of it. He's like, hey, I should see what that guy's up to. And uh, what he's up to, he's like, I really want to help churches, uh, you know, and worship leaders uh, worship God more freely, sing the faith more, uh, uh, more uh, joyfully. And so they got talking. He's coming out here. We're really excited about it. Uh, that's going to be on March uh, 5th and 6th. So mark your calendars for that as well. Well, hey, this morning uh, we are uh, continuing in our series in Mark's Gospel, and we have seen up until this point that Jesus constantly is running into uh, barriers with the religious leaders. He's testing the conventions established by those religious leaders of Israel. And all of the friction is kind of hinged on the question of Jesus' authority. By what authority does he do the things that he does? Does he say the things that he says? He's shown his authority over the Torah with his teaching. He's shown authority over the body with the healings that he has brought. He's shown authority over the spiritual realm with the uh, casting out of demons. And he has shown his authority over the boundaries of who receives God's grace with who he eats and has dinner with. And as a result of all that, there is friction. Whether it was, you know, who he ate with, how powerfully he revealed the heart of God's scriptures, and all of this, the religious leaders didn't know what to do with them. And as a result, there is conflict. And this morning, we're going to see how that conflict kind of boils over into the, uh, the, the time when it comes to a head. And the question is over Jesus' authority of the Sabbath. Which might strike us as a little bit odd because we Christians in the West, we kind of have this trained indifference toward the Sabbath. Uh, we get the idea of a day off, but the Sabbath is so much more than that. That's one of the reasons why we spent six weeks talking about it last year. But still, lost in all the distance between our cultural moment as 21st century Americans and where Jesus was as a 1st century Jew is just how central the practice of Sabbath keeping was to Israel's identity. Now, most of the places in the world have had a deep connection to a sense of sacred space. Whether you're talking about Pueblo sites in New Mexico, Shinto temples in Japan, uh, Stonehenge, Kilimanjaro, the um, uh, Mont Saint-Michel in France, all of these places have a connection to space somehow being sacred. Jerusalem was sacred to the Jews, but they, they venerated something more than that. I mean, that was a space where, uh, where God's presence was said to dwell in the temple there. But even more than that deeply holy space for Israel, there was a veneration of one thing above all, and that was time, specifically the Sabbath. The great rabbi Abraham Heschel said that the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. They are a kind of God's architecture in time. 
And so it wasn't so much that Israel kept the Sabbath. It is said that Sabbath kept Israel. It was the thing that allowed them to forge a strong identity, even in those, those long and lean years of exile in Babylon. Sabbath was not just something that God's people did. Sabbath was something through which God did something to his people. And we see what God did in the Sabbath all throughout the life of Jesus. His ministry came out of this place of deep rest and how for him, the Sabbath was a day of renewal. And the things that he did on that day revealed the heart of God, revealed God's longing for the people. And so this morning, we're going to pick up with that in Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. And listen carefully, friends, for this is God's word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pluck some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest He entered the house of of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, we would hear in these words a word that can only come from you that we would hear your heart for healing and restoration. And God, hearing, we ask that we would then be your disciples and obey what it is that we hear from you. We ask this in the name of the one who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus liked to get into trouble on the Sabbath. Uh, but most certainly it would have been what uh, John Lewis described as good trouble, the kind that shakes things up in order to set them right. His first day of ministry was, uh, took place on the Sabbath. It was a day of teaching. It was a day in which he brought healing into the world. And the central debate that Jesus runs into this morning is over that healing part, whether Jesus has the authority to do that on the Sabbath or not. And it raises questions that people have been asking about the Sabbath ever since. Are the boundaries of Sabbath meant to bring life, or are they just meant to keep our desire in check? And who has the authority to decide? Jesus is out walking through the wheat fields, and his disciples begin to pluck some grain and eat it along the way. I was assured 
vociferously by, uh, by, by uh, Tom Duber at the last service that that actually tastes good. I'm skeptical of that. So he said, no, no, come over to my house. We're going to have some unplucked or some plucked grain raw. Pray for me. The Pharisees are out, you know, kind of scouting things out, wanting to see specifically how Jesus was going to do this and what was going on so that they could start to lay a trap for him. And they asked what his disciples are all about. Why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the only problem with that is that there's actually nothing in the Torah about plucking grain on the Sabbath day. The only thing it says is do no work. But how do you draw the line between what is work and what is rest? Is inactivity the same thing as rest? Is all activity work? Now, take running, for example. How many of you are runners in this room? We got a couple. All right. A lot more in the last room, in the last crowd. Uh, some of you, though, you, I mean, like you come alive when you run. You, you start to feel kind of like your soul come, come back to you, oxygen filling up your soul, even as it is depleting from your lungs. You start to feel alive when you run. For others of us, which I'm guessing by the show of hands is the majority of us in this room, running is hard. And you do it only because you do not want your body to fall apart. Running definitely falls into the category of work. Well, how about gardening? Any gardeners in here? Okay, a few more of you. You guys like to get your hands in the soil. There's something that you start to kind of feel alive. You feel this deep connection with the earth. Um, you know, others of us, we see a pile of leaves in November, and we think, I don't got to do anything with that. It'll be mulch by March. And for you... The, the, the smell of, you know, freshly cut grass on a spring morning is not the smell of life. It's just the smell of more work to do. And so you go about the delicate dance of like, how can I kind of keep my yard to the spot just to where I don't get yelled at by my neighbors and can kind of keep in good relationship with them. My point is that it gets really complicated when you start to dig into where that line between work and rest is. Some things are clearly work. And I'm for one will say that after 2020, any Zoom call for any reason falls into the category of work. I don't care who I am talking to. Uh, tracking KPI on a spreadsheet for shareholders falls into the category of work. Grading research papers that are done by non-major undergrad students <laughs> falls into the category of work. These are the things you get paid to do, right? And you get paid for a reason to do those things. But other things are clearly rest. Laying on a couch with a good novel. Sitting out by the pool on a hot summer day. Maybe a cool drink in your hand of your choice. Having a good meal with good friends. Watching the Rams beat the Bengals. Mm-hmm, it's going to happen, people. I am not a prophet, but uh, let me just tell you how it's going to go down. Or if, you don't, if you're not into that, if you are a you know, hapless Bengals fan, you can laugh at the commercials that go on today. But my point is there's a whole lot of gray area in between those things. Now, cooking may be life-giving for you, doing laundry, <laughs> maybe that's always work, right? And so as a reminder, I mentioned this last year during the Sabbath series, 
a couple of questions to kind of help us figure out where that line between work and rest is. And the first one is, does this bring joy to my soul? Does this invite a posture of gratitude toward God? Does this thing allow me to live into the fullness of my humanity as one who is created by God to enjoy the goodness of what God has made? Some of you are taking the Emotionally Healthy Relationships class with Mike right now, and Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the book that that's based on, says that one of the dangers that can creep into religious folk is this distortion where people start to feel guilty about receiving joy. And so we suffer from delight deficiency, but Sabbath is an invitation to say yes to joy. And the second thing is, does this activity promote a posture of worship? Does this draw me into a place of appreciation and delight in God? Is what I am doing a foretaste of the kingdom, of that eternal celebration where we feast that awaits us with God? And if the answer is no to either of those two questions, you literally have six other days to do those things. But if the answer is yes, if it is life-giving, if it brings you into a place of joy, if it brings you into a place of appreciation of God's grace, then go for it. Have at it. And the ambiguity and the freedom is actually a very beautiful thing, but it's not without its problems. Now, the Pharisees, uh, for their part, uh, like I mentioned last week, they were all about trying to provide as much clarity as possible to remove the ambiguity so that God's people could have a sense of that freedom. And to do that, they employed this practice uh, called fencing the Torah, where they would provide all kinds of additional clarity, where they would take the, the, the laws that were in the Old Testament and they would kind of develop additional laws around them just to provide that much more clarity, to try to remove the, the borders where work and, and rest were blurry. And fences actually can be a really good thing. There was a study done in 2006 at, uh, by researchers at Mississippi State and they, they did this study to discover what effect the fences would have around a playground on preschool children. It's a simple experiment. Teachers were asked to take their group of uh, preschoolers to a local playground. And the first time they did this, there was no fence in sight. It was just an open field. The second time, they then took a, a group, same group of kids to a similar playground where there was a clearly defined boundary marked by a you-could-not-miss-it fence. And in the first scenario, where there was no fence, what do you think happened? The kids all huddled around their teacher. They didn't want to leave her sight. But in the second scenario, where the children could see the fence, they felt free to go and explore right up to the edges of that fence because they knew the boundaries were there for their protection. It actually promoted a greater sense of freedom. We live within limits. Sabbath is a gift given to us by God. It is a kind of fence around our time that sets us free to be creative. We actually see the same dynamic at work with a kite and a string. Uh, the, the string is actually the thing that provides the tension necessary to lift the kite off the ground. If you were to cut the string, you don't think, you know, the, the, the kite is not going to fly off into greater and greater heights. It actually will come crashing to the ground. 
A life without Sabbath, a, a life without boundaries, is a life in which we cannot flourish. Now, the problem in Jesus' day is that in the rabbinic tradition, they, they took this Sabbath command which said, do not work, and they got almost compulsive with it. They uh, created all kinds of additional categories of what work is, 39 categories to be specific. And the fence that the rabbis and the teachers of the law constructed, they had actually the opposite effect of the playground experiment because they left no room to play. Everything was all fence. I was reminded of this line by T.S. Eliot. He said that they constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. Some of the systems they dreamed of made sense. You know, no plowing, no, no digging a ditch, no hauling stone from the quarry, none, none of the things that will remind you of the, the kind of back-breaking labor that marked Israel's life when they were slaves in Egypt. It was all about trying to remind them that your value is not tied to your productivity. I heard a story in which a, uh, a young medical doctor was saying to a colleague that she loved being pregnant because it was the only time where she felt like she was 24-7 productive. Even when she was sleeping, something was growing inside of her. But I think that's kind of a sign of the hurry sickness that we live in. Some of the boundaries that they created got a little bit granular. You could walk to the synagogue, but you couldn't walk more than a quarter mile because then you would be crossing the line into work. Some of you were like, I'm done way before a quarter of a mile. <laughs> I get down to the end of my street and it's work. You could provide medicine to somebody who was dying, but you could not set a broken bone because it wasn't life-threatening. Never mind the pain that the person is in. Now, we hear that stuff, and it's easy to kind of dismiss the Pharisees as kind of these relics of, you know, a guilt-laden, you know, overly legalistic type of religious culture that totally misses the point. But like I said last week, the, the passion behind that was to actually honor God by lifting the law up, lifting up what had been forgotten by the people. And that's a good thing because there's a lot of wisdom in the tradition. There's a lot of good things in there. It's, it's a mixed bag. It turns out it's not so easy to downshift, which is why the laws that they made were so exactingly intentional. Jewish writer Julius Shulevitz notes that the rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will. One that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. But as with many well-intentioned things, over time, tradition can get morphed into something else. And you can very easily end up serving the tradition instead of allowing the tradition to lead you into a place of greater freedom and greater joy. Somewhere along the way, these teachers of the law lost sight of what Sabbath was all about, and they, they lost sight of God's heart behind this command to slow down and take one day of rest out of seven. 
Well, if that was the problem in their cultural moment, in our cultural moment, we are actually coming from almost the exact opposite end of the spectrum. The problem for us is not that we create too many fences. The problem for us is that we create almost no fences at all. Jesus' response to this is profound. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if the Pharisees needed to hear the second part of the command that man was not made for the Sabbath, we need to hear the first part of the command that the Sabbath was made for us. It is a gift. It is a means of grace woven into the fabric of creation itself. It is a way for us to embrace the limits of our humanity. We are not made to go and go and go and be productive 24-7. We need rest. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. And he's hearkening all the way back to Genesis that says that God worked for six days and rested on the seventh and in so doing built rest into creation itself. And for nearly 2,000 years, sure enough, every society on the planet, whether Judeo-Christian in origin or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, has operated on a seven-day calendar. Now, I'm going to show you something. What do you notice that's different about this clock right here? Yeah, it goes to 10, right? Well, the, the last significant attempt to change the cycle of six days of work and one day of rest took place in 1793. After the French Revolution, the New Republic undertook this social engineering project in which they tried to reorganize time itself into a decimal calendar, which divided each week into 10 days, each day into 10 hours, each hour into 100 minutes, each minute into 100 seconds. Now, part of the motivation of this was to boost productivity, giving workers consequently only one day out of rest out of 10 instead of one out of seven. But another motivation was to remove all religious associations. The 10th day rarely lined up with the Sunday, and so people couldn't worship all that often. Well, the result of the experiment is this. Suicide rates went up in the early days of the Republic. Mental illness was off the charts. Worker productivity went down. And the project was scrapped after just a few years. Twelve to be exact, which isn't a nice decimal. <laughs> study out of Sanford University found that after 55 hours, it's basically pointless to keep working. And that there is virtually no difference between 55 hours of work and 75 hours of work. Happiness begins to decline significantly after 48 hours, coincidentally enough, about after six days of work. And so could it be that God is speaking to us through our bodies? And so while we need to avoid excessive legalism on the one hand that would cut all of the joy out of the Sabbath, Jesus isn't saying that the Sabbath is a byproduct of our best thinking about it. He is saying that we are meant to live this way and we don't disregard it just because it's inconvenience. It's actually a boundary given to us to order our time, to give us space so that we can live. Let me ask you, what is the fence that you put up so that you have one day out of seven guarded where you can stop 
where you can rest, where you can delight in God, where you can worship, where you can rest, catch your breath, and allow the Spirit of God to bring healing to your body and to your soul. For Jesus, that is what Sabbath is about. And so the story continues on another Sabbath. The chapter breaks actually aren't there in the original. But at the start of chapter 3, which Mark intends as a continuation of this story in chapter 2, Jesus is in a synagogue teaching, as was his practice. And on this day, there was a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand, some kind of paralysis. And the conflict goes up a notch. The religious leaders show up this time with the expressed purpose of finding some sort of legal reason to challenge him. So Jesus has the man stand up. He asks the religious leaders a rhetorical question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or do evil? To bring life or bring death? These are not hard questions. But they're silent. And so Jesus is both grieved and mad. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man does it. It is completely restored. And the Pharisees, you know, it's this major turning point in their life where they're like, oh, we were so wrong for so long. Let us, tell us more. What? No, they don't do any of that. They go out from there and they plot to kill Jesus. Exactly. Bruh. <laughs> Here's one thing that Mark wants us to see. Right at the beginning, right at how the conflict goes at the very beginning is the same conflict that's going to play itself out during Holy Week. Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority. He begins to heal on the Sabbath. And then from there, it just keeps ratcheting up and up. The religious leaders first question Jesus silently in their hearts. And then they question Jesus' disciples about him. From there, they question Jesus about his disciples' behavior. Very, very passive-aggressive stuff, by the way. Then they seek a legal pretext, trying to hide behind the law for him. And then finally, they plot his death with the Herodians, which were their natural enemies, people who they thought were just had missed out on God's desire altogether. But they become alliance of convenience. And the thing that pushes the Pharisees over the line is what Jesus says about the Sabbath. Again, it sounds really strange to us, but I think that only highlights our distance from how central this practice is to living the life that God intends deeply and well. So what is it? Is Sabbath an outdated kind of legalistic practice that we need to abandon? Well, I think we do so at our peril. Jesus heals on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is a day for renewal. It's a sign of God's kingdom breaking in. And if we are going to practice the way of Jesus, it's not going to be because we're free from it, but because we allow the rest of Sabbath to get into our lives and dictate how we live the other six days of the week. In Mark, Jesus does his best work on the Sabbath. Friends, Jesus still does his best work on the Sabbath. We know what it's like to be beaten up by life. We know what it's like for it to feel like a knife fight in an alleyway. And whether that's because of the relational pain that we bear, whether that's because news we got from a doctor, whether that's hardship at work, the relentless news cycle 
I was just reading this morning about the opioid crisis has reached this, 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 this absolute you know, zenith here in this country. Whatever it is, we read these things, and, and we're not just tired. We are sore. We get worn down. We are limping. And so we need the Lord of the Sabbath to meet us week after week to provide healing, to provide renewal. Because when things get hard, we are going to be sustained by his presence far more in these times of rest and renewal than we will be in all of our anxious doings. Jesus will restore us in these times when we take deep rest. That is what the Sabbath is for. It frees us from the need to not only make things, but to make something out of ourselves, to just simply receive the gift of love that God wants to offer to us. And one of the biggest challenges of our culture, and I'm not sure we've entirely learned the lessons from watching the world grind to a halt a couple of years ago. I mean, I hear all the time, you know, uh, grumblings about supply chain and stuff like that. I'm not throwing a shade. A lot of the, the, the grumbling has come from myself on that. But have you stopped to think about how absolutely crazy it is that you can sit on your couch on a Saturday and order something, and it will arrive at your house two days later from across the world in China? We got so conditioned to a world that never stopped that we never even stopped to ask this stuff. Is that normal? Is it sustainable? Well, only in a world that doesn't keep Sabbath. Only in a world that doesn't stop to rest until we are near burned out, until we are running in the red zone on the RPM 24-7. And then when we do rest, do we pause long enough to be restored or only long enough to not be exhausted anymore? As if the point to life was to simply not be exhausted. When Jesus wants to offer life in abundance, Jesus wants nothing less than renewal And if we don't take time to rest, we miss out on life to the full. We miss out on on the love, the joy, the hope, the the, the questions about, uh, about intimacy, about wonder, about our sense of calling, about how God wants to use us in the world. When we don't have time to stop, we just push all of those questions aside. And we don't have margin then to love well because we don't have enough space to sit alone with God and allow him to meet us in that space. And so Sabbath, friends, it is an invitation to live out the fullness of your humanity, to trust all of the work that God is doing beneath the surface, all of the heavy lifting that God is doing. This is what we see in Jesus. The Sabbath is not the means of our salvation. Instead, it is the fruit of our salvation. He has already brought all of the healing that you need Sabbath is an invitation in the here and now to taste what that renewal looks like. It's not about saying no to work. It's not about saying no to worry and errands and demands. It's way more about saying yes to the Spirit of God, breathing new life into you, to place joy into your life, to give oxygen to your soul so that you can live life to the full. When Jesus told stories about the kingdom of God, one of the most common images that he used was that of a wedding feast, of a party. 
Uh, it was a place of life. It was a signpost of the kind of life of the kingdom. And so that's why it is that each week we come to this table to come and be restored by God, to be nourished in this meal, to trust that somehow by the Spirit, God is present as we eat this bread and as we drink this cup, inviting us into just a taste of that kingdom life. So friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. As we come, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And when he had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Take all of you and eat of it, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the cup and poured it out, saying, This cup is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. So it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Will the service come forward? All has been made ready. And as we come, let us proclaim the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again.